You're listening to a podcast from the Media Motel. Coming up this week in episode 617, the fake history of punk, does the world need a fire festival reboot, fake bands and Fleetwood Mac, squeezing more from the legacy of Amy Winehouse, and farewell to Bernie Marsden. That's all coming up after Todd Rundgren and Real Man.
that's so typical of Todd. He wrote this absolute banger and then mm. chucked it away on a bonkers album of synthesized prog rock in which he <laughs> produced the longest album ever made on a single disc, mm. meaning that much of the masters had to be speeded up to fit it all in. And the grooves were so narrow, record deck needles just skittled all over the place. Uh, oh. so, um, Yes, uh, not his finest hour as an album, but as a single, glorious. Mm, that's lovely. Reached 83 on the Billboard Hot 100 from 1975, Todd Rundgren and Real Man. I think that's excellent. And like you say, how typically brilliantly self-defeating that he shoved that away on a load of old pony of an album when it is, in fact, an excellent song. Welcome along to Parish Council, episode 617. I'm Terence Stackham, and... Uh, well, I know it's the question everyone has been asking this week. We have to find out. Has she been kissing any Spanish footballers? <laughs> Let's ask <laughs> Juliet Harris. No, although I did witness um, the the abdominal muscles of one of the female Spanish footballers at the English-Spain quarterfinal in the Euros in 2022 and was offered a fan by my companion as a result. But uh, <laughs> no, I have ne- I've never uh, done no. this. Honestly, I mean, I, I'm just... As they say in The Simpsons, men booing just because, you know, the Spanish women won the World Cup. You know, it pains me to say so as a Lionesses fan, but they won fair and square. They won very well. They were the most consistent team throughout the tournament. What are we talking about? The various misbehaving and malfunctioning men around them rather than their achievements. Um, Yeah, what could I say? Just uh, idiotic men abound, but then that's not necessarily news. Hello, everybody. Well said. Um, We came across a fascinating column written by um, Paul Burke in The Spectator in the last week, perhaps provocatively titled Punk's Fake History, The Mm. Invention of a Subculture. And of course, I'm all in favour of his view because it echoes what I've been pounding on about for the last (laughs) 45 years in that anyone who was a teenager or a young person, especially in London and the suburbs, knows that almost everything written about punk in the years since has been absolute tosh i mean the the idea that the country was almost overrun by these disillusioned renegade youths just it's just laughable and as paul burke says um punk was a passing fad that made little impression on the charts and on that front jules it was just uh, punk, punk music just another record that you might like and i can remember as an illustration, my then girlfriend going into the local re- record shop in mm. Weybridge in 1977 and buying singles by Tom Robinson, mm. The Pistols, Heatwave and Gladys Knight. You you just like the music that you liked, Jules. I suspect that's probably right, isn't it? And like you say, the th- I think the thing about punk that makes it, you could argue this about most subcultures, but I think the thing that makes punk so vulnerable to this is that it really was a fad. It was so mm. short, wasn't it? It was literally, was it a year? I don't even know. Barely think it that, was a year, right, really. Yeah. And, and, I mean, some of the records involved are, I still listen to. Some records have not really stood the test of time. You could argue with things like, I don't know, Mod, for example. Mm. That that look, there wasn't that much music that came out that was specifically sort of mod, if you see what I mean. Mods liked a certain type of music rather than the subculture being based around the music. I think does that make sense? So so lots of mods would listen to Northern Soul and and you know and, and bands like the Who perhaps and stuff that is still 
stood the test of time. Whereas in contrast, the uh, ill-fated mod revival, which took place as a result of the Quadrophenia film. Yes, you were right to snort dismissively from 1979, 1980. People like the Purple Hearts and the Lambrettas and things like that have not really stood the, time, the test of time in comparison. So like you say, you put it so well about your then girlfriend buying such a, a variation of singles. This um, This lovely article, like you say, says... Um, the Pistols didn't share that top 10 with any other spiky-haired renegades, so there weren't very many bands that actually had any level of chart success when it came to it. Instead, they vied with sales with for they vied for sales with Kenny Rogers, Barbara Streisand, and the Muppets, any of whom can still make them look musically and culturally trivial, says, uh, says, says this person here. And this is so interesting. Uh, his argument is that the reason that it drained, how has it remained in the cultural colander when par- far more popular genres have drained away? And he thinks it's a class thing. He says punk was as middle class as a Labrador and a Volvo. It was iner- invariably the posher kids who abandoned Point Floyd, Genesis, and yes, for the Sex Pistols and the Clash. After university, Many ex-punks went on to become writers, document, documentary makers, or cultural commentators. Not to criticise you personally, said he. Uh, writing <laughs> history to fit their own narratives. So what's so interesting, Lee, is that uh, history is written by the victors, and this little clerisy, educated and borderline boogie, was always going to be the victors. This is quite interesting, I think, really. So you know, and, and again, Britpop has endured, hasn't it? But hmm. speaking as someone that was a middle-class oh, yes, Britpop fan, la- I think there might have been a bit more of a of a sort of a swing towards, particularly Oasis were more of a working-class cut-through band, I think, in Britpop. But I do think it's interesting. I think that idea of, of class enduring and therefore certain subcultures being written about more than others, it's interesting, isn't it? We hear so much about punk, and I know it was short-lived. We don't hear quite so much about... I want to say sort of baggy or or grebo. Mm. We don't hear much. I mean, it might be just because the music wasn't great. But then was that much of the punk music that great when you look back on it over time? It, it really wasn't. And I mean, if you if one does listen to any oldies radio now that focuses on the 70s, they never play anything mm. by, say, The Clash or The Pistols or uh, The Vibrators or Chelsea or anything like that. It's, uh, you know, it's just a, a, it totally ignored because, as you said earlier, it hasn't stood the test of time. And I think also, that's it ultimately, isn't it? I think. It, it really, yeah, it just it hasn't travelled. And um, I think the idea that punk musicians themselves felt that they were knocking down the walls and smashing up the past was equally absurd. They may have said some things that they were prompted to do so in the in the new musical express. But I mean, I was actually with Joe Strummer in Asterix Cafe in Chelsea when we approached jo- Joan Armour Trading to tell her how much, in fact, in Joe's case, how much he adored mm. love and affection and the music. And and as as Paul Burke mentions and and, and as you um, just highlighted there. Um, Joe Strummer was very much the ex-public schoolboy, and that slurring ruffian accent he adopted in the late 70s for a while was just totally fake. So twice um, and three times over cheers for to Paul Burke in The Spectator mm. for putting punk in its place, really. Unusual to find me agreeing with The Spectator, but I guess there is a first time for everything. <laughs> It's, it's, it's often cited that one of the reasons some bands stay together longer than their contemporaries yes. 
is when the share of royalties on songs known as points um, mm. is equally divided, regardless of who contributed the most. And we've mentioned before, you two are often uh, cited as the most uh, prominent example of that, splitting everything four ways. And of course, they remain, you know, as the foursome who started the band over 40 years ago. And Coldplay, it was said, followed the same route, except that more recently, um, it, it, it's rumoured, it's said, that there's been an update with Chris Martin now getting 40% and the mm. other three 20, 20, 20. And now here comes news, Jules, that the lawyers are barging in. Mm, absolutely. I mean, just goes to show, doesn't it, that for all... So, so I've been a Coldplay fan since the very beginning and I always sort of joke every national coming out day that I come out as a Coldplay fan and the comments <laughs> are always absolute gold on Facebook. You know, uh, if I start listening to Coldplay, will my children like Coldplay? What will I do if my children start liking Coldplay? Are you sure it's not just a phase, etc., etc.? Um, I've always loved them. I've always thought they were great. I've always really liked their ethics. And so, like you say, it's rather sort of surprising and alarming because their big thing has always been they split everything equally. It's been the same people in the band forever, the same managers forever, blah, blah, blah. So now we've got news that not only is the royalty split allegedly different now, but also it would seem that their former manager and them have parted company. And he is, in fact, suing them, although we don't know quite why he's suing them, because precise details have the documents haven't been made public. It's alleged to be a contract dispute. Whether or not that is correct, I don't know. But it just goes to remind us that for all of Coldplay's kind of bonhomie and all of Chris Martin's good nature, gregariousness and all of their sort of coloured confetti cannons and, you know, all the sort of the slightly day glow nature of them. They're a business, aren't they? Just like the Rolling Stones are, you know, the music business. The emphasis is probably on business. Um, They may be caring about their carbon footprints, but they still became only the fourth British act last summer to gross over one billion from their oh career wide tours. The other three being this is I think shows how impressive their achievements are, really. The other three are Elton John, Rolling Stones and Paul McCartney. Coldplay in their mid 40s. They're not, mm. you know, they're not these heritage rock acts that have been around forever. Um, according to um, Alan B. Kruger's book, Rockonomics, which I think I might try and read because it sounds really interesting. It's full of stats like this. By the mm. time Coldplay were in their late 30s, they grossed more money from playing live than you two have by their mid 40s. I mean, that's just and it shows, I think, how the music business has changed and evolved. And we, we mention it frequently around these parts don't we that, that the money's in playing live now isn't it rather than oh, selling yes. records um they're very wealthy as a result even i mean this is perhaps an indication that the split has taken place in terms of different sort of splits of money um buckle and berryman and champion are worth 113 million pounds each and uh chris martin is worth 160 million pounds allegedly <laughs> i mean that is just it's it's something else isn't it really and the, the, the whole reason that they um that they ended up doing this in the first place was that um, Chris Martin and the drummer, Will Champion, had a had a, 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 a argument about um, about drumming just after they'd signed with Parlophone uh, when they were um, recording the Blue Room EP, which is one of their first records. And Will Ch- uh, Champion walked out. Um, Chris Martin got very, very drunk, apparently for the first and only time in his life. And afterwards, he was humbled and he decided that they would do a democratic kind of approach at that point. Um, it's very interesting that um, I don't think it's been confirmed that the split is now 40-20-20-20 but it's very Mm. sad um, when Chris Martin has previously been 
quoted as saying, and I do think this is actually, I hope he's, it's a shame if they're not still sticking with this, because I think it's its a brilliant quote. Chris Martin has reportedly said previously, do I really want to spend two weeks in court some way down the line arguing about who wrote what? Which I think mm. is a very good phrase. Yes. Obviously, the manager is not necessarily... Um, Obviously, the manager's not necessarily someone writing the music, but um, I don't know. It seems to be a um, it seems to be a tricky business, really. I do feel um, I do feel there is perhaps trouble trouble at trouble at mill and trouble afoot because they've effectively been joint managed. So they have a fifth member that's called Phil Harvey, who is a school friend of Chris Martin's from Sherbourne, who's been there, who was their manager. And then in 2001 became their fifth member, their creative director, um, as a result of which um, the uh, the other one, as I like to call him now, um, this is uh, Dave Holmes, became the manager and apparently the two of them work very much in tandem so it makes me think well what has happened if if mm. things have sort of um changed so much um harvey's become manager again apparently i'd be interested to see um interested to see how this develops but i am i i, I do hope that all is not unwell with Coldplay, but maybe you know the 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 multi-million pound empire that they've become as as well the literally the billion empire pound empire they've become as as overtaken other things i don't know it all feels very um it's all very expensive they, they do you remember they had the flashing wristbands with no, yes, yes, and, um, was, uh, also quite innovative you, it was although it makes you wonder how you know if they're single use does that really cancel out you flying <laughs> carbon neutral i don't know you but anyway um they they've um they've that sort of become a um is used by corporate clients. So so this is where they're sort of it's a canny business empire. Those flashing wristbands that Coldplay have made for them are now rented out and are used by people like Coca Cola, Vodafone, Porsche, that sort of things. If you see, I don't. Apparently, Xylo bands, which is what they're called because they were used to plug the album Xylo Miloto, um, have sales agents in 13 countries globally. Tell you what's a teach. You fancy a career change? We become <laughs> sales agents in Sussex. And sorry for uh, for Xylo bands. There's also investments in um, Noble Rot, the wine restaurant change. Um, there's a car magazine. There's all sorts of ridiculous things that are involved, um, and large houses and all that sort of kind of thing. It'd be interesting to see what happens and whether whether this is just whether Coldplay have just it's just become a, a a thing that just spins on itself, or whether whether the manager really is crucial. Yes, and as ever, ever since the birth of uh, birthplace of uh, rock and roll way back, I don't know, 1950s, mm. nothing is more likely to fuel the ire of other band members who are living in Guildford or Arundel than to read reports of the lead singer buying a ranch in Malibu. Mm. Nothing sets their teeth on edge more than that. Absolutely. Coming next, the festival that we thought was long buried and um, the audacity of fake bands. That's mm. right after Gary McParland. The faucet keeps it dripping and I can't sleep.
fan of that um i played it as part of a dj set at the weekend quite early on in a hot pub where people were just wanting to chill out and have some uh, have some have some nice drinks and just listen to some nice music and i love this whole album i found it for a fiver in a friend's record shop much to the anger of another friend of mine who had been um who'd been looking to find um find that album for some time um it's it's got that lovely kind of um I love his vocals on the whole album, this song on the whole album. It's got that kind of slight, that slight sort of blah, blahness about it, but not necessarily for seal, if you see what I mean. It's beautifully uh, laid back and friendly. I'm just such a, I'm just such a fan of his sound. It comes from the album The In Sound, which, as I was explaining to my other half at the weekend, released in 65. It's one of those albums, uh, lots of jazz people did this. Uh, the jazz world realised that they were perhaps losing pace, that they weren't the pop music of the day anymore. So they would find popular bat songs by bands of the day, rock songs, uh, record a cover of it, and then hang a whole album around that cover. So so the In Sound, released in 65, was basically done because it had I, I Can't Get No Satisfaction on it, which is an excellent version by Gary McFarlane. And that is the song which, hilariously, you can tell that the album's got a little bit of a whiff of the cash in because the, the, way, the order in which the songs are listed on the front is not the track listing on the actual record. <laughs> and uh, I Can't Get No Satisfaction is featured prominently on the front and is, in fact, the last song on the album. I was tempted to pick that, but I really like Bleep Bleep. I think it's got such a great swing to it. And uh, it is, well, it's, it's a it's a record about insomnia that still manages to be quite cheery and i'm quite a fan of that so that was gary mcpartland and bleep bleep well, i'm so glad you introduced us to this because it's absolutely splendid um completely new new to me mm. um his spotify um, biography says um rather intriguing mm. by the late 60s he was forgotten by his initial jazz followers and he mm. died in 1971 after being poisoned in a new york bar what which is, i didn't know one this of the, That's one, of the, one of the most extraordinary concluding sentences to a potted biography i, I want to say that well what do you mean he was poisoned in a new york bar tell me more Hang on, what? Yeah, exactly finishes. that is extreme it's extremely strange, isn't it? I, this was not something that I knew, frankly. And that, that makes me quite sad to think of how breezy that record is and how Gary Gary met a, a, a sticky end by the sound of it. I, I find that I find that very um I find One that seeks very to um, find out more about this unfortunate demise of uh, 
Gary McFarland. Gary McFarland. Um, so I can I'm, I've I've nipped onto the internet to try and find out what has what has happened and if they There's can tell us There's a little more detail in Wikipedia. Yes, yeah. he. Um, it's not known whether he took the drug on purpose. It was liquid methadone apparently yeah. that he ingested at bar fifty five. Didn't know if he took the drug on purpose or someone spiked his drink. Um, police did not investigate. And rather sadly as well. Yeah. Who knows? And rather, rather sadly, and sort of sad history repeating. Uh, Gary Gary um, McFarland passed away at the age of thirty eight. So did Gary McFarland's son, Michael McF- Milo McFarland, yeah. who passed away of a heroin overdose at the age of thirty eight. That's that's rather sad, isn't it? Really. Having said that, what a breezy and lovely record to remember, yes, Gary McFarland. It's lovely. Part. Yes. Yes. Exactly. Um, well, Jules, I've I found an offer for you. Um, mm-hmm. Mark the date in your diary, please. Friday, December the 6th, 2024. Uh, it's a fantastic festival. Uh, the location or the lineup hasn't been decided yet, but don't worry about that. Um, mm. The first release tickets have sold out. However, you'll be delighted to know that tickets will be available at $7,999 for Fire Festival oh, 2. Oh, no. Yes, indeed. Billy McFarland, who was responsible for the original fire festival, which charitably might be called a catastrophe, mm. is arranging a follow up um, now that he's out of prison. So, um, well, basically, <laughs> get yourself get yourself in the queue, Jules. <laughs> I mean, how ironic that, that we've got a song. Uh, I don't think we planned this deliberately. A song by Gary McFarland, yeah. followed by an endeavour by Billy McFarland. Yes. I hope not related. <laughs> I enjoyed this article by Stuart Heritage in The Guardian, which the opening paragraph of this very much sums up how I feel about this whole enterprise. (laughs) Think of the worst idea of your life. Think of a time when you messed up so comprehensively, so spectacularly, that you alienated friends, angered strangers, and permanently cratered your entire reputation. It might have felt bad at the time. Maybe you never even fully recovered. But please, console yourself with this. Whatever that idea was, at least it wasn't as bad as staging a sequel to the Fire Festival. <laughs> I could not agree more. If you want, if you'd like, a, I think a, a probably a previously on Fire Festival might be helpful for our listeners here. So it was held in the Bahamas in 2017. It was designed to appeal to influencers and promised untold luxury as a result. It ended in absolute disaster. So it was held in a remote parking lot. The festival's musical acts pulled out. The prepaid RFID payment system didn't work because of poor Wi-Fi. The accommodation was downgraded to disaster relief tents containing mattresses that got soaked in the downpour. And the promised gourmet food turned out to be a cheese sandwich in a in a, a foam box. Um, it was not good. It shouldn't be repeated. Vinnie McFarlane's come out of jail. He says that he that it would take place at the end of next year. He came up with a 50-page outline for it, inspired by his time spent in solitary confinement, and that the first batch of tickets ever sought out. So this is going to be like a, a giant prison, basically. Are we all going to have to experience <laughs> Vinnie McFarlane's prison spells with him? Um, he says that um, he swears he's doing things properly this time. Of course, <laughs> he, is. he says, yeah, this time, Terence, he's surreal. Um, tickets are to be held, be held in escrow until the festival is officially announced. Plus, he's promised that he's working with, and I quote, the best logistical and infrastructure partners this time to prevent anything like the last time <clears throat> from happening. There's a lot to unpack there, isn't it? Um, so basically, 
perhaps and again we often talk about that takes two people for a swindle to happen people that are swindlers and people that are willing or end up being or willing to put themselves in a position where they can be swindled if fire festival 2 sells out i have no sympathy for the people <laughs> that have bought tickets i have limited sympathy for people in the first place but at least you know if you've paid a lot of money for something you would expect a product we've been here before have we not we've seen how badly it's ended um so you know, it's it's uh, who would uh, Stuart Heritage says who on earth would want to pay good money to attend a fire festival, knowing that the brand is best associated with Korean scam j- scout jamboree level disaster. Imagine how frightened you'd be on the flight over, not knowing where you'd be staying, or even if there was enough food. So it seems very. Um, I mean, maybe fools and their money are always easily parted. Maybe those fools are other people that have bought early bird tickets here. I'm not sure. Firefest might be one of the only festivals in history where it is best to buy a very late ticket rather than a very early ticket. Because it feels like the infrastructure might improve as you go along rather than at the beginning. I don't know. Um, It's right up there um, with a description in the Telegraph uh, following the Reading Festival um, that described described Reading nowadays as Magalhães by the M4. Um, I think I'd rather even that than Firefest. <laughs> well, you ha- somehow have to admire the truth power of these people because I noticed um, looking into this today that on his uh, Billy McFarland's Fire Festival 2 website, Fire Festival hoodies are available ah. $200 each. Oh, for goodness sake. <laughs> you, I don't you want to really play do any, to say any more than people. that. I have, yes, indeed. When, when I was a um, teenage uh, rock tour booker and Rock mm. tour manager in the 1970s. I always enjoy these stories, so go on. One of the weirdest situations cropped up. It was really strange. The agency that I work for received a call from this guy, Clifford Davis, who was the manager of Fleetwood Mac. And this mm. was 1974, just a couple of years before the Buckingham Knicks renewal. But in 1974, Fleetwood Mac were really somewhat in free fall. It wasn't going well. Mm. We were told that the band, though, were back touring in the States and they'd been in California. And they wanted to play UK dates, but in um, smaller venues. So we, we oh. booked out a string of dates across the land. Um, colleges, De Montford, Leicester, and yes. Chester. And, all those. Um, and we started dreaming of the various 10% of the £1,000 per gig, um, mm. which was good. You know, £100 for the agency was per gig was yes. good money in 74. Suddenly, reports appeared in the music papers the very next weekend that we'd been scammed. And although Clifford Davis indeed was the manager of Fleetwood Mac, he'd gone rogue like an apocalypse oh, no. and recruited an entire band of fake um, Fleetwood Macs to make some cash while the real Fleetwood Mac were in this disarray. And so oh. lawsuits followed and uh, Davis was, of course, no longer the manager of Fleetwood Mac. Indeed. But this is all a reminder, Jules, of that big question. Are you still able to call yourself the original name of the band when there are no original members left? Well, this is a vexatious question, isn't it? I remember having a conversation with, with somebody once 
phony M-were advertisers appearing in Hastings a few years ago. And I remember saying to my friend, oh, did you see that Boney M on at the White Rock in Hastings? To which my friend Jolly replied, oh, yeah, which one of Boney M is it that's Boney M mm. nowadays? And there is always this kind of, you know, this split like there was in Slade. And, you know, there's always, it always yeah. comes down to a debate over the name. We've talked previously on the podcast how the original lineup of the Sugar Babes are now the Sugar Babes again. They no longer <laughs> have to call themselves MKS as they were and um, their first names, uh, Mutya, uh, yeah. Keisha and Siobhan. They're having been six sugar babes in all, once described by Peter Robinson of Pop Justice as the trigger's broom of pop. Um, <laughs> I am not sure um, how he would feel about Molly Hatchet, the southern US rock band. Um, yeah. Last month, they played to more than 10,000 bikers, according to Michael wow. Hannon's Guardian, at Berlin's annual motorcycle jamboree. I don't know whether to go to Firefest. Magaluf by the M4 or that, frankly. Um, 45 years after their debut album released, um, nothing unusual. Lots of rock bands yeah. still play to huge audiences. Uh, what is unusual is that no one who played on that first album oh. or on any of their first six albums oh, good was Lord. on stage in Berlin. Bobby Ingram is the band's guitarist and owner of the trademark to the name Molly oh. Hatchet is bothered. He's quoted as saying, I've been in the band longer than any original member was. He says he joined in 87. I have tenure. I'm the only one that can say I never quit or turn my back on the fans. I did what it took to keep this thing out here. And it's always a, 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 a sort of debate I didn't know this how many years do you think it's been since the band Napalm Death have <laughs> had any original members God well 10 years 37 years have passed <laughs> by with no original member of Ridiculous. Napalm Death in them um I mean, it's bad enough. You know, people like me who are big Pixies fans find it strange enough that the pictures are the Pixies without Kim Deal. So, mm. um, so it seems very strange to me. Um, you've got Theo Travis here, who plays saxophone, flute, and keyboards. Um, as surely, uh, it won't surprise you to say, surely there, there, there can only be one band that can accommodate someone that plays saxophone, flute, <laughs> and keyboards. Yes, that is jazz rock group Soft Machine. Um, Theo Travis is the um. He's in them now. Longest serving member in their fractured history, John Etheridge, who first joined in 75. He said in any band in which there is this passing of the baton like a relay, then you are clearly accepted. And if someone doesn't carry on, then they don't generally say, well, you must all disband. I mean, but I suppose it gets to this kind of critical doesn't it at what point and i think we tried to think about this previously at what point does a band stop being a band does the singer have to leave to stop them being a band and it makes me think of kasabian actually you might you might remember that kasabian had some issues previously where they they're sort of they had the same line out the same for them for some time and then their singer was um visited by the police for assaulting his girlfriend i think and was kicked out as a result and um and so the guitarist Serge is now the singer. Kasabian mm. is still going. Kasabian is still considered to be Kasabian. Serge has always been the main songwriter, but just hasn't sung. So then you think, what well, are Kasabian still Kasabian? Well, they they still sell records. They've still got the person that wrote all the songs in the band. He didn't sing them, but he wrote the songs. I think probably it's more of an issue when if there aren't any original members in a band. Does it matter if where when did those original members date from? It might well be, for example, that the original members of the band were in the band when it wasn't having any hits, and then the people that are currently in the band are in the lineup are having hits. Maybe the debate is if you're in the band when they were having hits, then yes, that is the lineup of the band that counts. I don't I don't know. 
It's actually it really is a tricky one, tricky one, and you you you, you remind me there. I just mm. think remembering in a similar vein, my partner said some sometime mm. recently, um, looking through the papers. Oh look, ten uh, cc are playing somewhere near us, and mm. I, I pointed out that it's only Graham Goldman, bless him, from the original four that is touring under the name of ten cc. I mean, I suppose it's a mm. step up from having no original members, but yes, it's a it bit is. of a jump to call it 10cc no. I, I do think there is something that doesn't feel at all right if you're touring and recording under the name of a band and nobody is left from the original lineup it does have an air of grasping cash especially when you say all oh, these people have now registered the right to have this name it does feel a bit under false pretenses because you can't set up let's say any old burger store in the high street and call mm. it mcdonald's and i don't think it should be acceptable for bands to promote themselves under under a bit of a falsehood either really no although this is an i'd like to see what you think of this interestingly um so soft machine particularly your man theo travis is noting mm. that so soft machine of course come from Can- the canterbury scene of experimental music from which they came so of the current lineup Basis, um, the marvellously named Fred Thelonious Baker was in the band in cahoots. Travis spent 10 years in Gong, one of the key country scene bands, which was formed by David Allen, who was one of Soft Machine's founders. And of course, Gong are also touring with no original members at the moment. So so does does it, you know, if you've got people from around and about at the time, is that the same thing people as being in the band? When does the band become more than the sum of its parts and a sort of an entity? And when does it become you know you wouldn't want to see the rolling stones without them in would you really it just seems like you say it feels very odd to me i think that there's perhaps a bit of a difference where um where uh um disco bands particularly seem to carry on through the legend of their children a friend of mine saw a personal appearance by somebody calling themselves sister sledge who i think was one of the children of sister sledge as he put it played a set that lasted 60 minutes and contained three songs one of which was a 20 minute version of we are family in which everybody in the audience virtually sung a line themselves um you've got stephen Calazzo, who leads the disco group odyssey um use it up and wear it out I think it's probably their best known tune, isn't it? His mother, Lillian Lopez, and his aunt, Louise Lopez, were the singers on their classic hits, including Use It Up and Wear It Out, and also Native New Yorker was there, was there and Going Back to My Roots. So they did the mm-hmm. singing. Um, and he was brought into the band back in 1977. He wasn't in front of house. He said, in 1977, New York City was nearly bankrupt. My brothers and I were teenagers and we weren't going to school. We couldn't find any jobs because the city was in such bad shape. We were eating like men. So my mum decided we needed to do something to pay the bills. So he became the Odyssey's musical director. And in the end... He wasn't the face of the band, but after his mother retired and he recruited new singers, he ended up becoming in charge. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so that is that such a thing? As the fa- I love the idea that disco is the family business there. <laughs> it just doesn't feel right, I have mm-hmm. to say. Mm-hmm. There's more to come. We've got more. We have Amy Winehouse's parents producing more tributes to Amy. Mm-hmm. And we say farewell to Bernie Mars. That's next after Grizzly Bear.
we all heard that for the first time and were told it was a lost track from the Beach Boys in 1968, we would probably all believe it. It's, it's a very talented band and it's well worth diving into mm. their albums. As a single, this reached 74 in the UK, 25 on Billboard in 2009 from Brooklyn, New York, Grizzly Bear and Two Weeks. I very much like that. That's an excellent song. And I really, like you say, I really love Grizzly Bear. There's a lot to dig into if you're willing to put the time in, I think. Every couple of years or so, the parents of Amy Winehouse, Mm. Mitch and Janice, seem to find some new material that is published as a tribute to Amy. Now, It used to just be the dad, actually. The dad seemed to be there mm. in life as well as death. Um, The mum seems to have got into it in in recent years, rather disappointedly. Now, I know there is an Amy Winehouse Foundation, and I should stress that Mm. proceeds from this latest venture do go to that foundation. So I'm certainly not implying any skullduggery, Mm. but, and you know, it's a but with the underlined, really, that Mm. although the grief of her parents is totally understandable Mm. and each day must be desperately hard to get through, I do wonder if it's viable to keep finding and publishing Mm. recordings or other material in this way. All of this preamble is because published this week is Amy Winehouse in her own words, 30 quid, by the way, Mm. and it's a book of photographs, letters, journals, or uh, diary entries. Now, I don't know the answer to this question, Jules, but I think I could have a good guess. Would Amy Winehouse have endorsed the publication of her private diary entries. And I think that the emphasis on the word private there is correct. Um, So I've always been an enormous fan of Amy Winehouse as someone that continually manages to miss the biggest bands ever when they're small for various, Mm. in in, you know, I've missed the White Stripes, I've missed the Strokes, I've missed the Scissor Sisters, I've missed all sorts of bands that I could have seen. I missed Katie Tunstall, all kinds of enormous artists that I could have seen. However, I will be able to take to my grave the fact that I did see Amy Winehouse perform live and she was brilliant. I saw her pre-Beehive years, um, Mm. 2004, five I think it would have been when she was touring Frank at the University of East Anglia in Norwich I'd found Frank um I'd heard Stronger Than Me on the radio and really liked it and then there was a shop um I don't think it exists anymore very sadly called Wells in Southwold in Suffolk that bizarrely was a sort of a photography type place that sold camera equipment and developed photos but also had a really good well curated music shop out the back that used to have a lot of classical and jazz CDs I discovered lots of my favorite artists going on holiday there every summer and picking them up I remember buying the Amy Winehouse album Frank from there thinking that I thought it looked good and I think they might have been playing it in the shop possibly and I heard another song and thought that I would like it and loved seeing her live I thought she was fantastic a bit odd but fantastic and I've always been an enormous fan she's a very similar age to me um I think she's a few months younger than me she'd be roughly the same age as me now and I you know I remember where I was well in the street in Brighton outside a pub when I when I found out that she died I'd been sitting having lunch with a former girlfriend and we were you know catching up and they started playing back to black in the pub and we were sort of talking about how great she was and how we had doubts about how the dad had been behaving and how we really hoped that she'd, you know, find her form again. And then I walked out of the pub to discover from a text message that the reason that we were hearing her is that they put it on in tribute because she died. Um, so I'm a, I've am always been a huge fan. Her loss has always felt very personal. She's always felt one of one of my lot, really. As a result of which, I'm in two minds about this. Being an enormous fan, yes, I would love to read her diaries because we're not going to have any more new material, are we? 
there's no more new music. And it seems from having heard the Lioness collection that they really have scraped the cupboard bare in terms of what recordings there were around. She died young. She died in a mess. She died where, you know, there wasn't like a lifelong, this is the choker, there wasn't a lifelong archive, was there? She wasn't in any fit state towards the end to record very much of any value, although there was the marvellous duet Body and Soul with um, with Tony Bennett, which I had the pleasure of hearing played on a record in Abbey Road, which is very moving. Um, I do want to read it, but also, no, in answer to your question, I don't think she would want her private diaries and her private notes. Well, if she did want them published, she'd want to be in control of them, wouldn't she? She'd want to pick what was in them and what wasn't. She's got no say now, has she? None at all. I can understand the grief that they're going through. And perhaps to some extent why they would want to present the Amy Winehouse that isn't the Amy Winehouse that was that we that we you know that we remembered as she died that wasn't the sort of chaotic chaotic figure you know the unwell figure the messy figure you know that that, that died in, in in such sad and diminished circumstances I can see why perhaps you would want to 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 present the kind of young hopeful creative Amy Winehouse to the world and how brilliant she was but it doesn't feel right to me, like you say, that she's not around really to be in charge of this. It, I, I, I don't know if they're cashing in or not. It might well be they're not. You say there is the, the foundation. I, I hope that the, that, you know, I know the Amy Winehouse Foundation does do a lot of good work with young people. I really hope that the proceeds go towards that. But it just feels so personal, this. And it feels so personal to be reading her school writing and seeing pictures of her as a child to be going through her private things when she's not here to say whether or not she's happy about that. Yeah, so, so right, Jules. I think just because proceeds go to uh, a charitable foundation, that shouldn't open the door to an endless stream of material, often a very questionable quality uh, being released, not just Amy Winehouse, but also anyone from the Beatles to Elvis, I don't mm. know, to Hendrix. You get to a point where the well is bone dry and you're scraping the very bottom of that uh, that metaphorical well to the, the detriment of the memory of that artist or band. Absolutely, I agree. Now, uh, Bernie Marsden died this week. He's not hugely well-known. I know that. Uh, well, mm. not too well-known, perhaps. But a brilliant guitarist and songwriter with David Coverdale and Whitesnake, they co-wrote Here I Go Again, which was a massive hit all around the world, including number one in America in 1987. But I particularly wanted to mention Bernie because not only was he one of the nicest, kindest musicians I worked with, mm. but just one of the nicest, kindest people in the world that I've ever met. Oh, that's lovely. Um, we often focus on in life the more negative sides of people. Mm. And in the music business, there's there's plenty. Oh, there's much to focus on, I would think. Yes. Yes. But in 1975, as, oh, as I mentioned earlier, I was still a teenager finding my way as a mm. booker and tour manager. And I was very naive, although I thought I, I knew it all. Anyway, I worked. I worked for a band called Babe Ruth, a Ooh. terrible name, um, mm. a, a rock band who never really got further than the college circuit. But mm. Bernie Marsden, later of Whitesnake, was their guitarist. Hey. And I just simply remember how, how helpful, kind and considerate he was in, in a world in the, in the 70s, as we say, that wasn't always so. Mm. And... Even better, I bumped into Bernie again about 15 years ago by sheer chance when we were both doing some work for the National Theatre and he was still the same smashing, smiley, friendly man. So it's a very genuine fond farewell this week to Bernie Marsden.
Absolutely. He sounds a delight. Although, interestingly, I'm reading this obituary on the BBC website. Ironically, given what we were speaking about earlier, in 2011, he reunited with Whitesnake for the first time since 1981 at the Sweden Rock Festival, becoming the only original member oh, of the band to grief. play with a later lineup. It's all right. It's all right for him to do. And I also am rather touched by the fact that um, a few years ago, he sold his martial connection of speakers and amplifiers um, in 2020. And he said, it's time to pass pass it on to someone else and you know what I think that's such a lovely attitude to have um he said he was selling the equipment with a bit of a sigh he said I would simply rather let it be played and cherished by someone else than in my lockup looking a little unloved and I rather like that really and he um he worked as a trainee hairdresser apparently in Bletchley near a store owned by Jim Marshall who was the creator of the amp and he would spend his lunch hours in the store and that's what um (laughs) that's what caused that was sort of what causes interest really and a percentage of the proceeds from that sale was donated to the food bank charity the trussell trust and to the homelessness charity crisis so uh, r.i.p um bernie who sounded like a lucky state I, I didn't have much familiarity with him but he sounds like a truly nice man and i haven't read a bad word about him in the tributes and i think that's very telling uh, the stories you say they're just typical mm. of a humble yes nice man yes absolutely thanks very much for listening this week good to have you along i feel the same way now, let me tell you, one way to enhance your life in the most mm. delight, delightful way is to listen in to Julia on the radio and her hours are being expanded. So it's it's just win, <laughs> win, win. What can I say? Unless you're not keen, in which case, well, you can always find something else to do. But if you would like to listen to me, you can hear me from 7 to 9 p.m. on noiseboxradio.com on Sunday evenings, listening to Smooth Sailing. That's where I do my Yacht Rock, M-O-R, A-O-R, easy listening, classic pop very sort of easy, easy kind of stuff. Also, the second series of my instrumental show, Lost for Words, returns uh, this coming Thursday, the 31st of August. You'll be able to hear that on Thursday evenings from 8 till 9 p.m. and Tuesdays from 11 till midday. Um, instrumentals of all in those genres. And it even we even managed to convert instrumental haters, Sir Terence, which I, you know, I really my do. biggest scalp of the first series, mm. a delight. So here's hoping we can keep you on board for the second series. <laughs> 30 years, Jules, since PJ Harvey's first album. It's just astonishing, isn't it, really? Who knows where the time goes, as, as someone, another great female singer once sang. But yes, um, whenever it's very, very hot, I'm always reminded of... Um, coming across this album this comes from dry for the first time i sort of got into pj harvey a little bit backwards in that i was a bit young for the first time around i got into stories from the city very much when it came out in 1999 and listened to it constantly as a result of which then started trying to buy my way through all of the pj harvey albums i, I could get my hands on and i found dry in sadly a now deceased record store i think it was called essential in brighton it was in a funny little sort of square it was it was next to rounder which is now gone as well and essential always had sort of very at cds being sold very cheaply compared to lots of places i remember spending 15.99 on rid of me by pj harvey on cd from hmb um a few weeks before and we went to this funny little shop and i found dry from 5.99 on uh on on album and we then went up on holiday to suffolk and it was a very hot summer before they were really sort of um the norm i'm sad to say it was it was absolutely baking and i remember listening to this song in a back garden of the cottage we were staying in and it really the guitars and it really seemed to soak up the sun for me so this is pj harvey and from dry this is happy and bleeding she burst, dropped off, 
You've been listening to a Parish Council production. <laughs> <laughs>